Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 14. As we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Genesis 14. I am um, only going to read verses 12 through the end. We won't read the whole chapter. Um, but we'll, we'll pick it up at verse 12. So uh, again, it's our practice to stand when we, when we read God's Word. So let me ask that you stand now if you're able. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 12, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. And then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons... But take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in and among us now to teach us, to grow us, to sanctify us. We pray that that we would walk out of here not merely knowing Your Word better, but knowing and loving Christ more. For it's in Christ's name and for His sake that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Kidnappers, hostages, uh, elite forces sent to rescue the hostages. Uh, Darkness provided the the cover uh, needed to carry out the operation. Um, No, that's not just true here in Genesis 14. It was also true in 1976 when a, a plane was hijacked and taken to Africa and, and immediately, secretly, quickly, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli prime minister, sent troops 
down to save uh, those that had been kidnapped, the hostages. Only three hostages died. Only one of uh, the Israeli forces was killed in uh, the in the mission. You know, it's funny, really, that that the two stories would have such parallel. That that Rabin sort of commitment to we can do this, we can go save and bring back our kinsmen, uh, his resolve to make sure that that uh, operation took place, uh, it's found in his great, 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 and I'll let you fill in the rest of the greats, grandfather Abraham. The exact same thing happens. There, there's a, a kidnapping, there's a, a nighttime raid and a delivery. It's amazing how similar and parallel the events are. The setting of Genesis 14, since we, since we didn't read the first 11 verses, there's a, a vassal suzerain kind of, of uh, arrangement going on. You've got this, this ruler, this king, Chedorlaomer, Kedorlaomer, probably, and probably have to spit a little bit when you say the first part of his name. He's, he rules over a number of kings in the region. And for 12 years, he has been the suzerain. They've been the vassal. They owe him uh, money, tithes, I mean taxes, uh, goods, um, resources from the land. They owe him their allegiance. They owe him their commitment to fight with and for him. 12 years, he, they have served him. And they decide they've had enough. Year 13, they revolt, they rebel. They at least withhold the tribute that they owe to Kedorlaomer. And in year 14, this powerful king says, if you're going to mess with the big boys, you better be prepared for what comes next. If you attempt a revolt against a powerful king in the Middle East, you better be prepared for what he's going to do in response. Kedorlaomer gathered uh, three other kings, and, and so four kings marched against the other five kings. But if you, if you read and, and follow the map of his, uh, his march... Um, it's a lot more like Sherman on a sightseeing trip. He, he keeps wandering. He doesn't make a beeline for Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanders and meanders and conquers and defeats and destroys people along the way. Maybe he's taking away uh, any hope of Sodom and Gomorrah and the others uh, finding uh, help in other kings. Perhaps he's taking away any chance that they can... can gather more resources and support for what they're doing until he finally marches on this alliance of five kings and defeats them and takes everything. It's, it's not even a competition. It's, it's not even close. He destroys them. In fact, it's so bad that some, as they're running away, uh, there are tar pits in this region. As they're running away, they're either falling in or they're throwing themselves in. The Hebrew word is actually reflexive, so it's, it could be either one. I'm, 
better to jump in this tar pit than to land in the hands of Kedor Laomer. But he took everything. He uh, defeated Sodom and Gomorrah, took all their stuff, took people uh, and, and you know, robbed them, pillaged them, whatever, and then took it all back home. And you can almost picture the, you can almost picture the look on his face. As he walks back in, you know, his camel barely making it from all the stuff he's stolen from these other kings, these other rulers. Smug look on his face. That'll teach you to rebel against me. You're going you're to rebel against me? I'll teach you a lesson. I'll show you who really is in charge. It's interesting, though, as you go through this chapter, as long as the battle was merely a, a, a skirmish between pagan Middle Eastern kings, Abram didn't care at all about the event. He doesn't get involved just because he lives near them. He doesn't, he doesn't get involved just because he... He, well, somebody's got to bring peace to the Middle East, so I'm going to do that. He stays out of it completely. He, there's no mention of Abram at all until Lot is taken captive. They took Lot, verse 12, and his possessions, and then went on their way. And a messenger comes to Abram and says, look, Lot's been taken captive. There are several reasons why Abram could have said, sorry to hear that, but I'm not leaving. Do you remember the last time we saw an interaction between Lot and Abram? In just the previous chapter, their, their, uh, their shepherds are... Uh, skirmishing with them, they're fighting with each other, they're, they're arguing and can't get along because the land can't hold them all. And so Abram said, look, Lot, here's all the land. We'll stand up here on this high spot. You take your pick. Lot said, that stuff over there looks really nice. That looks a lot like I think Eden would have looked. I'm going to take that and leave you, Abram, with the rest, the leftovers, the less attractive land, the less appealing land. That was the last interaction we saw between Abram and Lot. Abram could very easily have said, after what he did to me? After the way he treated me? All the care and protection I've given him since his dad died and, and I've taken care of him, I've provided for him, I've watched over him and that's the treatment I got? I'm not going to save him. He could have said, well look, I mean, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a war general. I've never been to battle. I'm, I'm not a decorated soldier. Who am I to go fight against that alliance? I would, it, would, it makes no sense. It would be wise and prudent to stay home and not go off to battle against Kador Leomer and his fellow, his army, his soldiers, his other kings. He could have said, look, Lot's the one that chose to live near Sodom and and you make your bed and you lie in it. And so he got what's coming to him and it serves him right for choosing to go live so close to such pagan kings. That's the kind of stuff we do, isn't it? Someone needs help and, and our first question usually is, what have they done for me lately? 
And then right on the heels of that is, how much is it going to cost me? Is this dangerous to me? Am I, am I possibly physically in danger? I mean, if I help this person, it's going to cost me time and how much time? It's going to cost me money. How much money? Could it cost me my life? Ooh. Those are the kinds of questions we ask. How much is it of a hassle is it going to be? Well, if, if Abram had answered those questions, the answers all said, Abram, stay home, don't bother. You don't stand a chance. He's a, a king who's defeated all kinds of people in his past, and you've never been to war, you don't stand a chance. The answers to, to all those questions that you and I ask all said, stay home, don't bother. But what do you notice Abram does in verse 14? He bothers. He's he's committed to taking care of his brother's son. Verse 12. I realize we have a word for that. I realize economy of language can be helpful. I realize that nephew makes a whole lot, you know, it's easier to say nephew than to say the son of my brother. That just sounds so cumbersome. But nephew sounds a little more distant. The son of my brother, there's a a bond there. There's a a kinsman there that, that requires, I need to go and take care of this guy. Abram's committed to saving Lot, to taking care of Lot. He's, he's been watching over him and, and providing for him and protecting him uh, however many years so far, and there's, he's not going to stop now. But also, it's not just the fact that this is his brother's son. That's not the only reason Abram takes off to save Lot. There's another reason. Abram knows he's actually invincible right now. He's been promised descendants like the dust of the earth, like stars in the sky. And you know how many he has right now? Zero. None. He's He's over 75. He has no children. He's, he knows that God is going to make His promise come true. That God has said, this is what's going to happen. There's a sense in which Abram is saying, I so trust God's promise that I can head off into this battle and redeem Lot. Either I know I'm not going to die or... God's promise meant something else. God's going to carry it out some other way. I mean, it it reflects complete and total trust in the promises of God. You and I need to hear that. You and I need to hear that trust in God's promises will give you courage to act. God says, Jesus says, 
I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we go, oh no, the church is in trouble. Christ says, make disciples of all nations and I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And we say, but that's just too scary. How do I know He's with He's promised to be with you. He's promised to build His kingdom. He's promised to build and establish His church. This has particular application for us, right, as a church plant here in Athens, Alabama. Christ has promised to be with you as you make disciples of all nations. Trusting God's promises will encourage us to act on them. Abram doesn't hesitate. Abram gets word that his brother's son has been taken captive. And immediately when Abram heard this, verse 14, that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. He grabbed his 318 men who had been trained for this, born in his house. Now I have to ask this question. I have to, you've got to make this observation, right? What was he training men for? He didn't wait to find out that Lot had been taken. Well, now I guess I'd better get some men ready for battle. They're trained for maybe. They're trained because who knows? He's already got 318 trained men in his household. They're they're prepared for this. They're prepared for war. But that preparation came in peace. That came before war was ever necessary. There's Abram's preparing his people for this. Readiness in times of trial means preparation in times of peace. There's the the model for us. Being ready for trial means preparing ourselves when we're not in one. Abram's trained men. He has men ready to go that as soon as he hears of Lot's capture, he can take off after him. And after Abram and Aner and Eshcol and Mamre defeat Kedorlaomer and the others, they recovered everything. Lot's free. Uh, his possessions are restored. His family is uh, delivered. Abram and his 318 men have done what they were supposed to do under cover of darkness. They, they sneak attack and then chase these men uh, for miles uh, further still. And as he returns home, he meets two kings. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. The king of Sodom, of course, is eager to see how successful Abram's been. Is he, is he bringing my stuff back? Is he bringing my people back? Is he bringing my subjects back? Is, how, how, how much has he actually accomplished? Has he actually done what he was supposed to do. And he offers to Abram gifts. Look, you, you just give me the people, you keep the stuff. That was 
Sodom's offer, the king of Sodom's offer to Abram. You, you just let me have the people. You can keep all the stuff. And did you notice how Abram responded? In verse 22, Abram says, look, I've trusted in God to provide for me. I'm committed to wholehearted, uh, wholeheartedly serving Yahweh. I'm not taking any of your stuff. I don't want you in a year or five years or 20 years to be able to say to anybody, hey, see Abram over there? See all that stuff he has? You see all his wealth? I did that. That's me. He won't let the king of Sodom take any credit at all for his wealth, for his prosperity. He's committed to trusting in God to provide for him, to care for him, and to to give God all the credit for all that he has. See, not only is he saying, I don't want you to get any, he's saying, I don't want you to, not only is he saying, I don't want to take any of your stuff, but he's saying, I don't want you to get any of the credit for what rightly belongs to God. I don't want you to, to divide, to share with God. Yeah, you see Abram all his stuff? It's me. God, has, God had something to do with it. I mean, God too. Okay, his God and me. But notice, there's something important in verse 24. Something we would do well to learn and understand. Abram conscientiously objects to taking any of Sodom's goods. He has this moral objection to, I'm not going to take anything that belongs to you, king of Sodom. But let these men have their share. Let Aner and Eshcol and Mamre have their share. I have a moral objection to taking anything of yours, but I'm not going to impose my moral objection on these men. I'm not going to bind their conscience and say, and they can't have any either. Notice that he's not binding the conscience of, of those other kings, those other, uh, his, his fellow um, deliverers, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Think of all the times you decide... If Scripture gives a clear command, we bind our conscience. We will bind your conscience on that. Where, where Scripture says uh, there's, there's no other way of salvation but through Christ, then we're going to look at you and go, you can't be saved except any other way, any other way except through Christ. We, we, where, where Scripture gives clear commands, we're happy to bind your conscience. But in cases where Scripture gives no clear command, Think of the times you've said, well, I, I think it's wrong for me to do X. It would violate my conscience to do X. I have a, a moral objection to doing this or that. And then we turn around and impose that as a law on everyone else around us. The standard, the classic, the, the easy layup example is, does Scripture say all drinking, all alcohol is wrong? No, it doesn't. 
Is it perfectly reasonable for you to decide this is not wise or good for me to do? Absolutely. Do you want us to encourage you in that? Absolutely we will. Are we going to then turn around and say, well, but what I've decided is wrong for me should also be wrong for you? We can't bind your conscience in those areas where Scripture is not clear. Abram says, I'm not taking anything from this pagan ruler because I don't want any of his stuff. I don't want any of his filth. I don't want any connection to him at all. And I don't want him taking any credit from God. But what these men do is up to these men and not up to me to decide. We make our decision and can't necessarily hold everyone else to the same standard. But then there's also this king of Salem. His name's Melchizedek. And and we're grateful. We read Hebrews 7 because... Without Hebrews 7, we wouldn't know much about this man. In fact, he shows up only three times in all of Scripture. Uh, Once here in Genesis 14, in Psalm 110, and then Hebrews 5 to 7. And if it weren't for the writer of Hebrews, we, we would predominantly be lost. Notice his name means king of righteousness. The writer of Hebrews told us that. His title is King of Salem. That's King of Peace. The writer of Hebrews told us that. But as you read Genesis 14, you kind of, you get to this King of Salem in verse 18. And you kind of, the puzzled look, the arms out kind of sideways, you know, the the, what's going on here, the wait, wait, where did this come from? That, that sort of out of nowhere just blinds. We've bumped into nine at least kings in this passage. We've seen kings and rulers in other chapters of Genesis. We've never heard of this guy. And we won't hear anything about him for another thousand years. It's not until David writes Psalm 110 and describes uh, the promised Messiah as being like Melchizedek that, that we hear of. And then it's another thousand years before we hear of him again in Hebrews 5-7. to Notice this king is not just a king. We're told in verse 18 he's also a priest. Now the, the original audience... The people to whom Moses is writing these first five books of the Bible, they would have said, no, 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 whoa, whoa, hold on, time out. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. King, priest, prophet, they're separate offices in separate men. You don't overlap them. No one person does both. No one person has both jobs. You don't do that. Well, except Melchizedek does. He's... He's a king. He's the king of Salem, but he's also priest of God Most High. Both offices bound up in the same person and immediately your brain goes, whoa, 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 hang on. That sounds like somebody else. Because there is someone 
who holds actually all three offices, not just priest and king, but prophet also in one person. Melchizedek is pointing you to Jesus. He's pointing you to Christ. In fact, Christ, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Notice, Melchizedek has no beginning. He has no end. He had parents. He's a real person. He's a human. He had parents. But we're not given any genealogy. We're not given any explanation whatsoever. We're not given any background. He just shows up on the pages of Scripture and then disappears. Like he has no beginning and no end. Christ is a priest like that. Not a priest like Aaron. Not a priest like Levi. Not a priest like those that would come through Levi. But a priest of a different order, a different kind, a different genealogy like Melchizedek. No beginning and no end. This Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Uh, we know, we know this even without reading Hebrews 7. The writer of Hebrews told us, thankfully, that makes it easier, but we know this. The greater always blesses the lesser. The superior always blesses the inferior. He pronounces blessing on Abram. Hold on. You mean Father Abraham? Father Abraham who had many sons? You mean Father Abraham, the, the father of of the Hebrews, of Israel? I mean, you think in the New Testament of, of Jewish, their great joy and pride was that they descended from Abraham and they could trace their genealogy back. And if it went through David, even better. And this passage says, well, but even Abraham recognized that there was one greater than he. One who blessed him and one to him whom he gave tithes. Abram gives a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek. It would be easy for us, I think, to say, well, you know, the tithe is gone. The tithe, that's ceremonial law stuff. That's civil law stuff. That's, that's stuff given... You know, it's part of the law given to Israel in the Old Testament. And that all passed away, except that here's a tithe that's before the law. Here's Abram giving a tenth to God's representative, to the priest of God Most High. We'll actually see another tithe when Abram's descendant offers tithes as well. Part of the argument of Hebrews 7 is, think of just how great Melchizedek must have been that even great Abraham would be blessed by him and give a tithe to him. It's an, an argument from the greater to the lesser and from the lesser to the greater in, at the same time. If Abraham, who's greater than you and I are, would give tithes to Melchizedek, how much more do you and I owe the, the tithe, the first fruit to Christ, who is even the greater Melchizedek. That's really what the tithe is. It's a way to show honor. A way to worship. 
a way to show submission to a king who rules over us. We worship with our mouths. We worship with our hearts. We sing, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. Do we model that rest even in the way we use our goods and giving to Him the first fruits of our labors? Abram models that for us to Melchizedek, and we serve a, the greater Melchizedek. Let me make two applications beyond the, the observations we made along the way. The first is this this passage shows us probably better than most that the Bible is not about you. See, we want to read the Bible and figure out where do I put my name in it. We want to read the Bible and go, now where am I in this story? Where am I in what I'm reading? This passage shows us, it models for us, because it only shows up here and and in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews 7, and each uh, step along the way, each writer says, this is about the Messiah. Melchizedek is a, a shadow, a type. It points us to Christ. This passage shows us, it models for us that the Bible's about Jesus. It's not about us. Melchizedek is mentioned here and it's another thousand years. And, and David says, look, the promised Messiah is going to be a king, but he's also going to be a priest just like Melchizedek. And Hebrew says, well, here he is. Here's the fulfillment right here in Christ. Christ must be central to our understanding of God's Word, central to our lives, central to ministry at Grace Covenant Church because Christ is the aim of all of Scripture. A second, final application is this. We are more like Lot in this passage than we would care to admit. If you and I were going to read this chapter and say, well now, let me put myself in this passage. Okay, I must be like Abraham and go save people. Well, it starts with, hang on, first I'm like Lot and completely helpless and totally dependent on someone else to come and rescue me because I can't rescue myself. Your hope is not in your obedience. Your hope is not in you saving yourself. Your hope is in the fact that there is a kinsman redeemer. That there is one coming to save and to buy you back. To redeem you from captivity, not to a foreign king, but to sin itself that rules and reigns over you. You need, you need Abraham. You need the greater Abraham. You need the greater Melchizedek to come and rescue and save you. To deliver you from captivity to sin. If you're here this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, that is the urge of this chapter. Run to Him. There find rescue from sin. Let's pray together.
Our great God and our King, you have gone to battle in our place. You've gone before us, defeated our enemy and your enemy, redeemed us, delivered us from oppression and captivity to sin. Father, we pray that we would live a life of gratitude, granting honor and glory to You in response to that deliverance. That Christ would be central to our lives, to our reading and understanding of Your Word, to ministry here at Grace Covenant. That You would receive all the honor and glory for all that we have and do and say and think. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.